Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. Please join me in prayer. Father, we are in need of your spirit to work within us as we seek to meditate upon the things that you've written through uh, your servants. Thank you for the privilege of studying your inspired word. Help us to draw near to you and to humble ourselves before you and to learn what we need to learn for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So Carl Frederick Benz and Gottlieb Daimler in 1885-86 were the first to invent motorized automobiles. Now, that didn't take place through a half-hearted pursuit. That was something that they had to give themselves fully to. A man or a woman does not arise to the rank of admiral or general in our military through a half-hearted approach to their career. It takes passion to excel at anything. It takes passion to excel at anything. So the question is, what are you, what am I, passionate about? What are we passionate about? As we continue our study of the book of Romans this morning, we will recognize the passion that Paul had for the ministry of the gospel among the church of God. The passion he had for the ministry of the gospel among the church of God. We ought to ask God to help us to have a passion for the things that He values. And that throughout our time this morning, I trust will be your attitude and mine, is that we will be prayerful that God would give us a passion for the things that He values. Take a look, please, with me at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Passion is felt throughout this section, I think. He first of all starts with the emotion 
thanksgiving. He's thankful. He wants to express his thanksgiving to God for you all, he says. And, and this thanksgiving takes place without ceasing. He's making mention of these believers in his prayers to God. He also notes that God is his witness. God can bear testimony to the fact that he serves God with his spirit. This is not a half-hearted approach. This is a whole being approach to serving the Lord. The Spirit of God energizing the Spirit of Paul to minister the grace of the Gospel in the lives of people, believers and unbelievers alike. He also says that he's asking that somehow, by God's will, uh, that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You can tell there's a passion here. He says, I long to see you in verse 11. Verse 13, I have often intended to come to you. In verse 14, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to Jews. I am a debtor both to the wise and the unwise, to the rich and the poor. You could throw a lot of varieties in here. But he's letting you know he is a debtor. He's under obligation to preach. And so he says, I am eager. I have this passion to preach the gospel, not just out there, but there in your midst. To you also, I want to preach this gospel. You can tell that he is uh, passionate about them and passionate about gospel ministry. This morning, this passage can stoke within us a passion in three areas of gospel ministry. Let's start with our first one. We need passion for God, excuse me, for the church's gospel influence. We need passion for the church's gospel influence. Look at verse 8 again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because, here's the reason, I'm so thankful to God. This is, here's the reason I'm so consumed in my prayers. Why I continuously bring my prayers to God and give thanks to you. This is the reason why I want to go and be a part of you, uh, of your ministry. I, I want to go and minister to you. I want to bring the gospel to you. The reason I have this passion for you is because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He sees the influence, the gospel influence the Roman church is, being, uh, is, is having amongst the nations. And he says, this is the kind of church that, that needs to be characteristic among God's people. This is a church of gospel influence, so he's passionate for them. The public testimony of the church in Rome had spread through the region. This was the cause of Paul's giving thanks to God for the impact of the gospel in their lives. This is similar to the way that he gives thanks for the Thessalonian believers. You'll remember that their, their faith in the Lord was so impactful that wherever Paul went, he was finding people from the church of Thessalonica who had been impacted by the gospel. And the testimony was this. They had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And they're waiting for His Son from heaven. There's this complete revolution that had taken place within them. You call that a transformation. You call that conversion. You call that spiritual life. You call that being born again. It's gospel impact. Their lives had been eternally changed. This produced thanksgiving in Paul and ceaseless prayer. 
Paul mentions his affection for brethren in other churches that he did not know personally. Let's take a look, please, at one of these examples. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. You'll find that on page 983 of one of our church Bibles. If you're navigating through your own, you're going from Romans through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Paul had expressed on numbers, numerous occasions his thanksgiving for those people that make an impact in the lives of others, even if he hadn't met them personally. We're in Colossians 2. Take a look at verses 1 through 5. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, you say this next portion with me, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Can you see? He has this tie to this group of believers in Colossae, Laodicea, and all those churches that he has not seen face to face. This is the same intensity, passion that he had for the church in Rome. And the reason for this passion is because he cares about God's work amongst the people of God and in the world. And so he was tied to them. Why such passion for these churches, whether it be Rome, Laodicea, or others? It is for these churches that Jesus Christ laid down His life. Jesus purchased these churches with His own blood. He said this about the church in Ephesus, didn't He? In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Because the Lord Jesus laid down His life to purchase these churches, they were of great interest to the Apostle Paul. And I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, in this day and age, even among those that claim to be believers, there are some that devalue the church. They devalue the church. Well, I have a relationship with God. I just don't have a relationship with the church. Uh, I, I don't believe in organized religion. Whatever the catchphrase may be that you've heard however many times. But if you see a man of God who's been um, saved by God, is being sanctified by God, is set apart for the gospel of God, where is his interest? His interest is in the churches of God. His interest is in the churches of God. We need a passion for the church's gospel influence. Why was Paul so interested in the Colossians, for instance? Take a look at Colossians chapter 1. You're already in chapter 2. The Colossians received the gospel and it produced an incredible amount of fruit. Colossians chapter 1. Take a look beginning in verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, 
this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. So the gospel has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is, the gospel is bearing fruit and it is increasing. Also, excuse me, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so the reason for his passion for, say, the church of Colossae or the church at Rome is because the gospel came to them They were responsive to the gospel. The gospel was producing fruit within them and then from them. It was abounding and increasing. When you hear, when I hear, when we hear of God's work through the gospel in other churches, what should our response be? We should rejoice. We should pray for them. And we should pray to see the influence of the gospel in that church and in the church that God has called you to be a part of. We need a passion for the church's gospel influence. That, that's this church, and that's the church down the street that is a gospel-preaching church, and the church across town that's a gospel-preaching church, and the church across the region, and across the nation, and across the globe. It's not about the glory of a church. It's not even the glory of the church. It's the glory of the head of the church, the God of the church, the one who laid down His life as a once-for-all sacrifice to call us out of the world and place us into the church. So we need a passion for the church's gospel influence. Secondly, as we head back to Romans chapter 1, head back to Romans chapter 1, secondly, we should be passionate, we need to be passionate for ministering within gospel churches. We need to be passionate for ministering within gospel churches. See, it's not enough to just show up, though that is a very important element. It's not enough just to worship with the church, though that is of great importance and value. We must show up and worship and look to impart God's grace as we are a vehicle or a vessel of that grace amongst God's people. We need to look at coming to church as an opportunity to serve the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Here we see in verses 9 and following this call. uh, It's more of an example than a call, but we are looking at it as a call because we're seeing the example of the Apostle Paul and how God worked in his life. Verse 9, For God is my witness, in whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. The first item that we want to notice is that when we serve God's people with the gospel, we are serving God. Verse 9, For God is my witness whom I serve in the gospel of His Son. 
that gospel was the one that he wanted to bring there and elsewhere. And in serving people with God's gospel, we're serving the God of the gospel. Also, we want to notice this. Our service for God requires service from our spirit. Our service for God requires service from our spirit. Our service to the Lord should come from the heart. Now, that's not an expression that I really care much for because it can be easily misunderstood. Oh, I, you know, I, I, you know I, I believed in my heart. I thought in my heart. I, uh, I was led with my heart. Well, your heart is deceitful above all things, like mine is, and desperately wicked. So we, we, we have to be very careful what we are saying when we're saying that God led me in my heart, or my, I felt in my heart I should do this. It's a, it's a very tricky expression. However, here he says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. With my spirit. Now this expression with my spirit is is an expression of our inner man. You can see this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 5 and 6. They'll be on the screens to my left and right. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere, what does it say? Heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So he uses this expression, and uh, Peter also does in First Peter chapter one in verse twenty-two. He says this: having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that means they had turned from their sin and turned to Christ for salvation. They were obeying the gospel. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a what? Pure heart. So he's referencing the inner man. He's talking about our spiritual, worshiping, God-conscious part of our being. It's that which God has made alive at salvation. We've, we call it regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's the Titus 3.5 expression, regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You can call it being born again. That's Jesus' terminology in John chapter 3. You can be, call it being made a new creation in Christ. That's Paul's expression in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's when we came to know God, when we had recognized our sinfulness and turned from our sin and turned to Jesus Christ for salvation, God made us alive. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, you he made alive, for by grace you have been saved. That Ephesians chapter 2 passage. It is spiritual life. He served God in his inner man. It was about this inner man that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. Listen to this one in Ephesians 3.16. That according to the riches of his glory, he, God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So here's the important expression. When Paul is talking about serving God with his spirit, he's not talking independently of God. He's making a shorthand reference to God's spirit working within him, energizing his human spirit that makes him God-conscious, alive toward God, and God's spirit energizing his human spirit that then serves God in the gospel. So he's talking about the fact that we need to serve God from our spirit, which is to be 
uh, utilized by the Holy Spirit to serve God by serving the church. This is, this is good news. In a world that wants to be independent from other people, Paul says, God has called me by His grace, set me apart for the gospel, and that gospel ministry gives me a compulsion, a passion, a drive toward, not a drive away, a drive toward the church to serve God with my spirit there. As we move a little further in the text, our service for God depends upon regular communion with Him in prayer. Our service for God depends upon regular communion with Him in prayer. Take a look at at verse 9 again. The second half of the verse now. That without ceasing, without ceasing, I mention you always in prayers, in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at at last succeed in coming to you. His call, what his, his, what his expression is, is God has given me a burden for you. And in that burden for you, I go to the only one that matters. Are you burdened by someone or for someone? <laughs> Not by them. We're all burdened by someone. Are you burdened for someone? <laughs> Are you burdened for someone? When you think about them, uh, your heart it maybe gets low because things aren't going the way they should go. It, it's, it's hard. And it, Paul illustrates for us the right way to deal with that heaviness. To go to the only one who can meet that need and bring forth resolution. And his resolution is always the best kind. In order to serve God, I have to be regular. In order to serve God well, I must be in regular communion with Him. Now, think about this day and age that we live in. And this may um, impact some of us different ways. So, so bear with me. You're, you're responsible for yourself and you're your own individual. Smartphones, computers, and other devices have made a negative impact upon this generation's ability to meditate. When I used to stand in line at the bank, I had nothing other to do than to think or pray. Now when I'm standing in line at the bank, I have lots to do. The lots to do might be fine and good things to do. I might be texting someone about something that that's helpful. I might be writing or responding to an email to someone. It might be a really good thing to do. At the same time, with all of this preoccupation, all of the, the, the moments of our lives having something where our phone or an iPad or a computer or something else is in our hands, such easy access to instead of having opportunity for the Spirit to commune with you, to to. To, to point things out, to remind you of things. You are finding other things. I am finding other things to think about, other things to do. So all of my moments are occupied from the moment I wake up till the moment I go to bed. And so as a result of that, my meditation is not what it ought to be. My prayer time is not what it ought to be. There's always something to look at. Instead of thinking inwardly and upwardly, we are being influenced from the outside. Sports news, 
Political and social injustices and jocularity rule the day. They rule our devices. We need regular communion with God through prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, maybe this isn't true about you. Maybe you're not one of those. That doesn't mean this doesn't apply in other ways, whether it be with a book or a magazine or a newspaper. Whether it's some task that's always on your mind. You've got your to-do list and that rules the day. Whatever it is for you, you and I, uh, it's incumbent upon us to figure out what is driving us and keeping us from meditation, from godly, appropriate prayer, from having a listening ear to our Heavenly Father through His glorious Spirit that He's placed within us. Find a way, ladies and gentlemen, to set it aside. Find a discipline that tells you from this time to this time, I'm not touching it. From this time to this time, I'm setting it aside. During these activities, shouldn't be out. (laughs) Dinner table. Dinner table. No need for your phone at the dinner table. Set it aside. Take a picture, post it on, and set it aside. Do what you need to do, but set it aside. That's opportunity for the Lord to speak into your family's life together. I could go on and on about this. Our communion with God through prayer is first and foremost about our relationship with Him, and then it is about His will and direction in our lives. Prayerful communication... Listen to this. Prayerful communication will result in great concern for the church, both local and universal. And of course, we should have a deep concern for our neighbors who are in need of the salvation that God provides through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, our service for God depends upon regular communion with Him in prayer, and Paul illustrates this in his own life and ministry. Next, as we move a little further, our service for God requires being present. Our service for God requires being present. Take a look at verse 10. We've read it several times. We're just going to keep reading it. Hopefully, the more we read it, the more it stays in our minds. And God's Word in our heart enables us to love, serve, give ourselves to the Lord. Verse 10, Always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in what? Coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I want to come to you. I want to see you face to face. This idea is akin to, like, fellowship. Now, the word fellowship isn't used here, but it's like that expression. The word koinonia is the Greek term. It is a sharing of life. It is participating together. You can tell that this is the kind of emphasis he's talking about. I want to come and impart. I want to share my life with you, and I want to share something better than my life with you. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. 
He's talking about having this influence in this face-to-face relationship. Uh, the Bible talks about this for us in Hebrews chapter 10, and often the emphasis is in verse 25. That's not the emphasis of the actual construction. The emphasis is in verse 24. Look at what it says on the, on the screens to my left and right. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us, there's the emphasis, consider to think through how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's the command. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What's the means to do this? Well, verse 25 is the means. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, so as you see the day that the Lord Jesus is going to return, when the Lord Jesus is going to judge the nations, when the Lord Jesus is going to set up His kingdom, when the consummation of the ages is coming, because that's coming, it's drawing near. It's an imminent return of the Lord Jesus. Nothing else needs to take place before the Lord Jesus comes back. He could come now. Even so come Lord Jesus is the echo of our hearts, isn't it? Because He could come, He tells us our responsibility is to stir one another up so that we are leading one another toward loving God, loving one another, and doing good works. Why do we want to do good works? Because we want everyone to think well of us? No. We want to do good works. Let your works be seen before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The goal is that the Lord Jesus would be praised. And so our fellowship together is for the express purpose of leading one another toward a life of loving God, loving one another, and serving Him with our lives. It's a blessing when you show up. It really is. It's a blessing. It's a blessing when you participate in the worship. In other words, when you sing. When you sing. It's a blessing. You might say, well, it's not a blessing when I sing. It's not true. It's not true. I can't sing hardly at all. It's it's pretty pathetic. My kids make fun of me, tell me I'm on the wrong note all the time or whatever they call it, the wrong key, whatever. doesn't matter. Like I wouldn't suspect if you're a horrible singer, you should be belting it out. But sing. (laughs) Sing. It's a blessing. Giving is a blessing. Participating in prayer participating in prayer. That doesn't mean you come up to the pulpit to pray, but there's someone at the pulpit praying. When they're praying, is you praying? You should be praying. We should be praying. When when we're in prayer, we are in prayer. Which is why, generally, I try to avoid I, the word I, when I'm leading in prayer. It's we. It's we. It's us. We come to you, Lord. We need you, Lord. We want to serve you, Lord. We want to worship you, Lord. This is a way that we minister together. These are, these are good. There needs to be further development, however, than just showing up and participating in worship. It is essential to establish relationships within the church. Establish relationships within God's body to where you know others and they know you. Because it is in that knowledge of one another, that that relationship, that true ministry can take place. You see, how can 
you bear one another's burdens if you don't know what one another's burdens are? How can we who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering ourselves lest we also be tempted, if we don't know what temptation, what what trespass has overtaken our brother and sister in Christ? That requires our involvement, engagement with people. Not staying in your own little section every week. Not showing up at 10 o'clock, 9.58, and leaving as soon as it's over. If that's what takes place, now we're happy that you're here. Don't, don't misunderstand. If you come at 10.02 and leave at 11.15, I'm still happy that you came because you need this. And your presence is a blessing. It's just not enough. That's not the end of the story. Your presence is the entryway to worshiping together as a body, and it's an entryway toward establishing relationships that we can speak into one another's lives. And my friend, you need it. And so does the person in front of you. And so does the person to your left, right, and behind. We need one another. This is why God has placed us into the body together. The church has been called to build itself up. Build itself up by God's Spirit working within us. So our spirit service for God requires being present. Let's move a little further. Our service for God has specific and important goals. Our service for God has specific and important goals. Look at verses 11 through 13. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now you almost have these verses memorized at this point because of how many times we've read it. Um, That's not a bad thing. Our service for God has specific and important goals, the first of which is sharing spiritual gifts. Sharing spiritual gifts. Verse 11, I want to come, I want to come that I may impart to you some spiritual gift I want to impart a spiritual gift. Does this mean that Paul's presence was going to make the church at Rome a church? No. Um, Some people take it that way. That's not the point. Um, What I want to to discuss, deliberate over, I think is a worthwhile communication for just a moment, if you would just uh, indulge me. When God gives you a spiritual gift, now when did that take place? The moment you trusted Jesus Christ As your Savior, the Spirit of God regenerated you, gave you life, seals you, sets you apart for eternal life, is your security, yes, and God distributes to you a spiritual gift. When God gives you a spiritual gift, do you own it? It's my spiritual gift. Well, let me ask you a question. If someone gives you a watch, you can do whatever you please with it. Is that the same as spiritual gifts? Okay, here's a watch. This is for you. Now, can I tell you later on what to do with the watch? No. But that's not the same with spiritual gifts, right? Spiritual gifts. The word spiritual in the Greek is pneumatikos. Pneuma, spirit, and ikos. That's a great word, ikos. It's it's an ending. 
related to the Spirit. A spiritual gift, a gift charisma, is the grace gift that's given. It's a spiritual pneumatikos, charisma gift. It's a gift that is operated through the Spirit. When God distributes to you and to me a spiritual gift, there is not a transfer of ownership from Him to us. Instead, the gifts of the Spirit that come through God's sovereign discretion are to be operated under the surrender of our will as we walk with God. If you have the gift of teaching or the gift of helping or the gift of administration, whatever the gift may be, it's not as if now you say, all right, now that I know that I have the gift of, name it, I'm going to go and do X, Y, and Z because that's what the people with those gifts do. That's not how that works. That's how it works if we're human trying to do human things. Well, I have, I have my degree in such and such, and I'm going to go apply for this kind of a job, and I'm going, to, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to operate in this sphere of influence because I have these skills. It's not how it works in the spiritual life. What happens is you and I, when we receive a spiritual gift, even though it's been distributed to us, it is still under the sovereign discretion and empowerment of Almighty God. It's His giftedness in us and through us. So when Paul says, I want to come and, and I want to impart a spiritual gift, he's not saying, I want to use my spiritual gift among you. He wants to be a vessel of God's spiritual ministry when he comes to them. And that needs to be our emphasis. As we approach coming to church, we need to approach it by saying, Lord, how do you want to use me today? Lord, help me to get out of the way. Help me not to control how things go. Help me not to just see the people I want to see. Help me to see what you're laying out before me. Help me, by your grace, to be a channel of your blessing. Our best approach to using the spiritual gifts that God gives to us is to use them humbly and consistently walk with God. As God leads you, be responsively obedient. All this requires that we are with God's people, for spiritual gifts are for God's glory in the building up of His church. So the first item of uh, specific and important goals that he had there was sharing spiritual gifts. Secondly, he wanted to strengthen the church. Verse 11, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. To strengthen you. Now Ephesians 4 sets the ultimate pattern for the church strengthening itself. God gives gifts to the church. He gifts the church with those that are called to be pastor teachers who equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You see that in verses 11 and 12. The church body seeks to grow in truth and in the demonstration of truth. You see that in verse 13 where they're measuring up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And verse 14, not wavering to and for, excuse me, to and fro like, like children being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, and then in verse 15, 
God lets us know that the body is to live and speak the truth in love toward one another. The, the word there is actually truthing it in love. Well, you can't truth without talking, right? But talking's not enough. It's the talking in the doing. It's the talking in the walking. Truthing it in love. As a result of truthing it in love, we, we build one another up. And then in verse 16, he lets us know that the, the, the body, each individual part, the body, all of us are held together by one head, Jesus Christ. While we are fulfilling these duties of doing the work of the ministry, of growing in our relationship with the Lord Jesus that He would be demonstrated in our lives, uh, growing in the truth of the Word, growing in living out the truth and speaking the truth, God will in, um, allow us as members of the body of Christ to be involved in seeing the growth of the church in love. The growth of itself. God causes us to cause ourselves to grow. Well, how is that? Because we're humbly related to Him through the Spirit. And we're living in accordance with the truth. So, the goals to share spiritual gifts, to strengthen the church. Paul didn't possess these gifts for his own benefits, but to benefit God's church. And this is true of every believer in Jesus Christ. And the sad truth, the sad truth is that many Christians don't think that they have to be used as a vessel of God's transforming work in others' lives. We get so used to getting caught up in our own personal lives, our own jobs, and our own families. We just live, live, not recognizing the value of what God has placed in you and how He wants to use you to transform the lives of others. Paul was set apart for the Gospel of God and he knew this. And he knew it would take place both in the world and in the church. And we need to realize that God gifts us for the strengthening of His body. Pause for a second. Who are you strengthening? Have you been praying these last few days in your approach to coming toward worship? Asking God to direct you and use you in the church. When we come to church, we need to be praying about how we can be a channel of God's blessing and God's grace in the lives of others. So he wants to share spiritual gifts. He wants to strengthen the church. And then next, he wants to encourage their faith. Verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So strengthening and encouragement. Strengthening and encouragement. These are similar concepts aren't they? From strengthening for the work, he transitions here to encouragement through the difficulties. Strengthening for the work, encouragement through the difficulties. He uses the word sum parakaleo. Sum, the word is soon when it's used separately, changes the N to an M when it's connected. It means with. Parakaleo is to call alongside. The Spirit of God is called a paraclete or the parakletos. He's the one who comes alongside. He's the comforter. He strengthens us. He guides us. He, he enables us for the ministry. Well, God says, or 
God through Paul says, I want to come, I want to impart a spiritual gift so that you will be strengthened. That is, so that you will encourage my faith and my faith will encourage your faith. We will together call one another toward the Lord. Call one another toward the Lord. To call, invite together. This is the call of ministry. And it's not just for the guy behind the pulpit And it's not just for a board of elders or deacons. This is for the church. We see this in numerous passages. I'll just spout out my favorite one because it's just, it it clearly articulates it. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the idle. Those are the ones that are out of order. Encourage the faint-hearted. They're really hurting. They're growing weary. Help the weak. They have uh, small souls. They, they, they're, they're, they're losing their way. They don't have the, the, the wherewithal within themselves to keep going. Tells us to help the weak. And then he says, be patient with them all. This is an important part for the church. So much in this life can get us down. I don't even need to use any illustrations, ladies and gentlemen. Undoubtedly, within the last week or two, something has gotten you down. Something has been difficult for you. Something has caused you consternation, weariness, physically, weakness, mentally, spiritually, financial hardships, relational stress, political concerns, the list goes on and on. Our tendency, when we are feeling weak, is to retreat. I just need some me time, alone time. So we separate. And that doesn't help us. What we need is to be kindled. And kindling doesn't happen when we're separated from the flame. It happens when we draw near to the flame. And one of the ways that God builds that flame is this togetherness in the church, pointing one another to Him, reminding one another of where He has saved us, and reminding one another of where He has saved us too. Yeah. How often do you think about what the future holds? Well, you think about what the future holds, you know, the economy and and the president and the next president and the president after that and my grandkids and the the environment. There's a big hole in the atmosphere and global warming. I was listening to someone was speaking about the, the... uh, the ice ages that have taken place and how there was a mile thick of ice. And I'm thinking, these people are so imaginative. <laughs> they just speak about it like, like it actually happened, even though they know they're only theorizing. No one was there to see it. No one can reproduce the testing on it, right? We know all these things, but they just, they've, they've taken this in and they spout it out as if it's fact. I'm thinking, all right, wait a second, wait. I know this. I know my Bible tells me that there is a day coming that Jesus will return and those that are in bondage, now bondage to our flesh, not necessarily bondage to our sin and death, in bondage, Romans chapter 8, 
We're crying out. We're waiting for, for this uh, complete restoration. The earth itself is crying out. It's groaning. Jesus is coming back. Amen. We need to be reminding one another of what is to be at the end of all these things. There might be lots of perilous, difficult things that take place between now and that day that it's over in this life and that glory commences uh, in its visible and full and eternal form. But in the meantime, we have difficulty and we keep reminding one another, look, the day is coming. Jesus hasn't forgotten us. God didn't make a mistake. It's all going to be okay. You're going to hear that out there? You're going to hear that at school? You're going to hear that on the news? You're going to read about that on the interwebs? Not likely, unless you're looking in the right places, I suppose. God gives us one another so we can help one another and encourage one another. God is our refuge and our strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Now, if you've gone through a low time and no one was there for you, that's probably happened, right? And you know what you, can, you could do? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not recommending it. You know what could happen within you? Well, no one was there for me when I was going through my tough time, so that's that. that that's not the right answer, folks. It's not, hey, no one stood up to the task when I needed it. I'm not going to come alongside of someone else. The right response is, I know how that feels. I know what that's like to feel like I've been abandoned, to feel like no one's there, no one knows, no one can identify, no one, no one seems to care. I know what that feels like. I need to be an instrument in the hands of God to help. Lord, help me. Lord, help me to help my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We need one another. This is one of the stated goals of Paul's ministry, to share spiritual gift, to strengthen, to encourage the faith of others, and then to transform lives, the transformation of lives. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. This is a good place for us to, to, to wrap things up because I was going to go through verse 15 this morning and then in two weeks from now go through verses 16 and 17, but really we can we can actually look at verses 14 through 17 all at once. I want for us just to get a sense of this because uh, the third passion that we see is we need passion for the transformation of sinners. We need passion for the transformation of sinners. He's letting us know he was under obligation in verse 14 to people in and out of the church, Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise. And then in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. He wanted to bear fruit. He wanted to harvest fruit. Is it harvesting his own fruit? The fruit of his own labors? No. It's the fruit, the harvest that God provides. The Lord Jesus said, pray, pray, that the Lord will raise up laborers that they might harvest the work of the Lord of the harvest. And so his, his goal was to see God's fruitful work coming to fruition. And that transformation is both justification, people coming from death to life. It's also sanctification. 
It's also that work that God is continuing to do in our lives where he's transforming us so that we're more cognizant of who he is, so that our mind is being transformed more and more to understand who God is and what his way is, so that when we sin, it's so easy to recognize the difference between God's standard and mine. And when we're walking in in the power of the Spirit and we see the fruitfulness, we're so quick to recognize God's at work and not us. God wants to sanctify us. He wants to justify us. And he does this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need a passion to see people transformed, both unbelievers outside the church and believers inside the church. So I want for us to think about this as we conclude. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? Are you passionate for God's church? Is there tangible Evidence to substantiate that claim? Do you value what God values? God values this church. Who within the church are you strengthening with your faith and spiritual entrustment, the spiritual gifts God's given to you? In what ways are you sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with believers and unbelievers? God has called us out of darkness, placed us in the church. Are you passionate to be together, to worship together, to speak into one another's lives, and to see the gospel having its impact in each other's lives and then spilling out from this place? Let's pray together. Father, you know what we need. You know what we need in our minds and our spirits. You know where we're stubborn. You know where we need encouragement, where we might need rebuke, admonition. I pray, Father, you'd work within us. Continue to use your word and the book of Romans to minister your grace in us. We pray that you would be glorified and that we would be transformed. I pray for each one sitting in here. I pray that you would help us to recognize where we are not responsive to you and allow your spirit to transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.